so once the saints realize that they can feed themselves in the Salt Lake Valley, the next effort is to start sending out a large group of missionaries across the world. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. We're excited that you're joining us today for our discussion of Chapter 12 of Saints Volume 2, Their Faces Are Zionward. Today we are lucky to have with us Jed Woodworth, who is the Managing Historian of the Saints Project. Jed, can you just remind our listeners what it is that you do for the project? I know you've talked with us before, but what is it that the Managing Historian does? Well, Ben, I'm part of a small team that designs the architecture of the volume. So when we set out to write a volume of history, of course, naturally, the first question is, what rises to the level of importance? What do we include? What do we leave out? And so I help plan the storylines. I help find characters. I design scene specifications. What do we want to get done in this particular scene or in this chapter or this period? In addition, uh, we have a number of external reviewers. We have some outside scholars. We have everyday members of a church. We have general authority reviewers. And I help take those comments and decide what to do with them, how to incorporate them into the overall writing. Which is not a trivial task. I help a little bit with that. And I know Jed and his team, we get a lot of feedback and figuring out how to do that and make sure that we're not leaving out anything that is of importance. You know, you guys just do an amazing job and I'm so grateful. The church is grateful for your efforts on the project. I'd like to add just one more thing on that. So everything that we write in Saints has to be referenced, which means that we don't make up any details. This is not a work of historical fiction. And so even down to a detail like what the weather is on a day, that has documentary base for writing in such a way. And so I don't reference check the volume, but we do have reference checkers who check everything we write. And then I work with them to incorporate their feedback. They will come back and tell us the source doesn't quite say exactly what you've written. And so then we have to reconcile what they've found with what we've written. Well, and that's such an incredible way to write history because just those tiny details of the weather and people's feelings that they share in their thoughts, it just makes it so personal. It's so great. And and it's not easy either, I would say. I've heard some of our writers and historians say, boy, it sure would be nice to be able to say this is what she was thinking or he was thinking. And unless we have a journal entry, we just can't. We can't make up the details like you could in a a historical fiction. So, Jed, we're talking about Chapter 12 today. This is a a momentous moment in one of so many in Saints, but we're going to lay the cornerstones for a temple. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with this cornerstone laying ceremony? Sure. So let's go back to earlier days when the saints were building temples. The command to build a temple comes very early in church history, and the saints take this seriously. It is one of the most, if not the most, important mandates that they feel like the Lord has given them. And so everywhere the saints go, the first thing they do is they plot where they're going to build a temple. And the temple is typically at the center of the city. So in traditional New England towns, what is at the center? It's usually a place where animals go. It is the public square. And the public square is a place where people can go and talk 
and the voice of the people is heard. And really in American history, the voice of the people stands supreme. But in Latter-day Saint history, whose voice stands supreme? It's the voice of God. And so God then is placed at the center of every city that the saints build. So when the saints come into the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, it's only a few days after they arrive that Brigham Young puts his cane down at the, the southeast corner of what we know today as Temple Square and says, here we will build a temple to our God. Now, that's 1847. Here we are in 1853. Why did it take so long? Six years. Yes, yeah, six years. And, of course, readers of these earlier chapters know why it took so long. The saints had to feed themselves. They had to bring people across the seas and find a place for them. They had to work with government officials who didn't share the same values as the saints in every case. And Brigham Young was a very busy person. He was governor of the territory. He was superintendent of Indian affairs. So there was a lot going on. And then, of course, the logistics of building a temple. You have to find stone. You have to find workers. You have to create plans. So we're now five and a half years beyond the moment when they know they're going to build a temple. And now they can actually proceed in earnest. So there's a wonderful quote in the book that I think many of our listeners will likely be familiar with. I'd like to play that now, and then maybe we could talk a little about what this might have meant to members who had not received their endowment in Nauvoo. There must have been many of them at this point in the valley. Let's listen to this quote that Brigham Young said at this temple cornerstone ceremony. Your endowment, the sermon explained, is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord which are necessary for you, after you have departed this life, to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, enabled to give them the key words, the signs, and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood, and gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell. Who is he talking to here? What's his audience? Well, it's a great quote to highlight because in some ways it's a timeless quote. He's speaking to people who are living at that time, but he's also speaking to all of us. I think of that quote in relation to the architecture of a temple. The Salt Lake Temple is unique among our temples in that when you look at it, there is a kind of fortress mentality to this temple. And your eyes are drawn upward to the battlements and the crenellations on either side on the towers. And so it does have the feel of maybe a medieval tower is, is going too far, but certainly a European kind of castle. And who designed the temple? Well, Truman O. Angel was the, the first architect, but he had input from the first presidency. Brigham Young said he saw the temple and vision. We don't know exactly what that means, how much of the original design did he see? And of course, some elements of the design changed over time. Even elements after Brigham Young's death in the mid-1880s changed. But in general, the evocation of the architecture is we are building a structure that is going to last until the millennium, a very solid structure. Some of the walls are 16 feet thick. Wow. And we are going to keep out sin. What goes on here is the things of God. Did you mean 16 inches thick? 
Were no. they really 16 feet thick? Some walls are 16 feet. Oh my goodness. 16 feet. <laughs> yes. Thick. Yes. Okay. And so again, I think we see this motif in the Book of Mormon, right? Where we see in the war chapters in Alma where Mormon has included all of this warfare stuff. And some readers say, why? Why Why is all this here? Well, we know that there may be multiple reasons, but one of them is that the war chapters are a metaphor for what we should be doing to keep out sin from our lives. We should be building armaments and battlements and figuratively. So this is what the temple evokes, is a, a way of getting back to God, of creating a holy people that have rejected the world and the world's trends and are taking their cue from the Lord and his prophets. And at this point in time, so this is 1853, they've, we've talked about they've been in the valley for six years. So they're doing this ceremony, laying the cornerstones at a spring general conference, and it's the church's 23rd anniversary. And I was just thinking, it's only been 23 years. I mean, think of everything that's happened. It started in New York. They went to Kirtland, Missouri. They've come across the plains. Saints have gathered from different places in the world. And it's just kind of incredible. That seems like a whirlwind. So here they are at this general conference laying the cornerstones. Can you tell us more about what happens now? Well, just a comment about everything that has happened. The church is very different in 1853 than it was in the 1830s or even the early 40s in Nauvoo. Most saints are British now. And so if you walk down the streets of Salt Lake City in that time period, you would hear British accents, which is interesting to think about. You know, today we don't think that way. Of course, today, if you were to gather a cross-section of all the church, you would hear a Spanish accent or someone speaking in Spanish. So in that respect, it's not so different. So the church is different, but it's still a rough place. It's a, And by rough, I mean there are dirt roads. You wouldn't get paved roads in Salt Lake City until the late 1890s. So it's a frontier town where there are not a lot of goods. There's no real connection. Uh, the Pony Express will be started in just a couple of years, but that's short-lived. So the saints are really hundreds of miles from cities, and it's very difficult to get to this location. But again, that, that makes it all the more remarkable that in the middle of this desert outpost, as it were, that they are building a huge granite structure, nearly twice the size of a Nauvoo temple. And so the ambition is outsized. It's a hugely ambitious project for what they have going on on the ground in the city. Jed, there are other individuals with big ambitions, perhaps in their own individual way, and that in regard to missionary work. We meet in Saints, a wonderful sister, Anne Eliza Seacrest, and her husband, and they're involved in missionary work. Can you tell us a little bit about missionary work at this time in regards to couples being called and how that would work for a family that's trying to establish themselves in this outpost? Sure. So at this time, missionary work has some commonalities in what we do today. Of course, the uh, men that go out, in, and it is men, we won't have female missionaries until about 1898. But there are some wives who go. We have a story elsewhere early in quarter one of volume two involving the Pratts who go to Tubawai. But for the most part, it is men who are already married who are going on missions. And this, of course, is a huge change from what we see today. And the thinking back then, it is slightly different than what we have today. And it is this, 
If you have a man who is older, what does that imply? It implies that he's more seasoned. He's had a period of time to see how the church works. He's stronger in the faith. He has more knowledge. And so at that time, the saints had not tested the idea that we have today that the church is going to be in good hands with 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds representing it. That idea had not been tested. And so they sent mostly married men on missions, and that put a lot of strain I think we can say that on the families because imagine children and wives who don't have their husbands. And so many men are farmers at this time. And so they can leave their farms in the, in the hands of someone else to plant the crops and harvest them. But that is more stress, more strain on a wife. And I think in this particular story, we see the strains of separation. What is that like for Sister Seacrest when her husband is in Europe? thousands of miles away. Well, something that she said that, because I, I can't help but put myself in that situation as a wife and a mother and having your husband leave for years and trying to still keep your family taken care of, fed, sheltered. Anyway, she says in a letter to her husband, it is of no use to try and stop this work for it will roll on in spite of all the devils on earth and in hell and nothing can stay its progress. And I just am amazed by the faith that they had because I just feel like I would probably be really discouraged and really fearful. But it reminded me of something that we talked about in earlier chapters where you mentioned Louisa Pratt. She just says, nothing would justify the separation except building the kingdom of God. And so it's amazing to me that a lot of these women are able to have that perspective. It's incredible. Right. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that because it's easy to look at Anne Seacrest and say, her lot is a lot of deprivation. But she didn't look at it that way. The fact that she is able to sacrifice her husband, that is a way for her to contribute. So it's in the act of letting him go and saying, I love the kingdom as much as you, and my act of sacrifice is different from yours. Yours is you're going to give up your time with me and our family and give up your time and, and maybe anything you might have earned um, in worldly goods during the time you serve. But mine is I don't have life with you. But nonetheless, it's an act of sacrifice for her, giving up him for the kingdom. And I think it's good to realize that what may look like on the surface is, is something that's harsh or, you know, why did she have to undergo this? Well, from a different point of view, this is actually her way of giving to the kingdom and helping to build it up. That's a great perspective. In another part of the kingdom, out in Hawaii, we have George Cannon and Jonathan Napella, and word reaches the announcement about plural marriage, reaches the islands, and it causes a bit of an uproar. Can you tell us a little bit about that situation and what George and Jonathan did to help the members there, now numbering over 3,000 converts, to understand this principle of plural marriage? So in Hawaii, there had been a tradition of polygamy, in the past, but the Protestant missionaries who had come to Hawaii, who had preceded the Latter-day Saints, they had tried to eliminate this practice as an element of barbarism. So, of course, Protestants did not practice polygamy, and monogamy was the, the law of the land for them. 
And so naturally, when they went into a land where they were preaching, they tried to implement their law. So in this context, George Hugh Cannon gets the word that plural marriage is now being practiced in the church. And he was aware of this, but now it's being publicly discussed. And so he does feel the need to let the Hawaiian saints know this is part of our church. And so he translates what is today Doctrine and Covenants 132, and he gives a, a sermon to the saints explaining this practice. But what is interesting about it in Hawaii and really in the context of all the missions is that polygamy or, or what we call plural marriage is not something that is encouraged in the missionary lands. It is something that is practiced in the Great Basin in Utah and as it spreads out across the 19th century in Arizona and Idaho, Canada, and Mexico. But in the missionary lands, it's not encouraged. And why would that be? Well, I'll answer my own question. I think the main reason is that it creates a very cumbersome relationship with the laws of these various countries. So while the saints are willing to tackle what they deem to be unjust laws in the United States, they're not willing to take on the same burden across the world. So George Q. Cannon is not encouraging the saints in Hawaii to go return to the tradition of their fathers and mothers. This is a, an interesting time in Hawaii, and they're, they're looking for land in Lanai. And in, in future episodes, we're going to talk a lot more about what happens with that land purchase and really a rather sordid tale that the church loses land. And so we'll save some of that for future episodes, but this is a, a pretty exciting time for the, the saints in the Pacific. Now, on another front, we have missionary work happening in South Africa. And maybe I could just play a little quote here from the book that describes the complexities of doing missionary work in South Africa and specifically the attitudes and thinking about teaching people of African descent. Another factor complicating their work was race. A year earlier, the Utah legislature had debated the status of black slavery in Utah. Neither Brigham Young nor the legislators wanted slavery to become widespread in the region. But several saints from the southern United States had already brought enslaved people into the territory. Brigham believed in the humanity of all people, and he opposed slavery as it existed in the American South, where enslaved men and women were considered property and lacked basic rights. But like most people from the northern United States, he believed black people were suited for servitude. During the debates, Brigham declared publicly for the first time that people of black African descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood. Before this time, a few black men had been ordained, and no restriction existed then or afterward for other races or ethnicities. As he explained the restriction, Brigham echoed a widespread but mistaken idea that God had cursed people of black African descent. Yet he also stated that at some future time, black saints would have all the privileges and more enjoyed by other church members. So, Jed, this is the first time we sort of have on record, is it not, that Brigham is talking about these ideas of the priesthood restriction? That's right. We have Brigham Young saying in 1847 of a black elder in Lowell, Massachusetts, we have one of the best elders, an African. So between 1847 and 1852, during that five-year span, the origins of this priesthood restriction and what will become also a temple restriction are murky. 
We don't have adequate documentation. And so this has led to all sorts of speculation. Where is Brigham Young getting this restriction? And we don't know. That's the simple answer. We don't have adequate documentation. But it is an important part of the record that in 1847, he praises Q. Walker Lewis, this elder, one of the best elders, who is an African. And by African, of course, that means a, a man of black African descent. That Brigham Young praises him. And so we could say a lot about this restriction, but I'd like to point out that at this time, people of African descent across the world had to endure unbelievable racism. And today, of course, we look at this and we say, this is extremely painful. This is difficult. This is not right. But at the time, that is in the 1850s, almost no one thought as we do today. Very, very few people. And in fact, you can find what we would call uh, racial distinction or even racism in all corridors of society across the world. This is in the Western world. This is in the Eastern world. And I would just invite our listeners, if you haven't had a chance to read that, it's an essay, the, one of the gospel topic essays called Race and the Priesthood. You can find that in the church history section of the gospel library. You can also find it under gospel topics on churchofjesuschrist.org. And I'd invite you to read that. It's very helpful to understand not only the historical context, but also, as Jed has just mentioned and quoted, the teachings of the church today, which gratefully and emphatically and, and very clearly state that any of those theories of the past, regardless of who said them, are disavowed by the church. That is not what we believe. And I believe as a church, we're all very, very grateful for the revelation that comes on the priesthood in 1978. And of course, We'll talk more about that as we get into volume four of Saints. But for now, here in South Africa, there is some work that's happening, and it's small, and mostly, as I understand it, with people who are of European descent who are living there. I guess they would be Dutch or English and other settlers. Afrikaners. Right. Yes. There was a missionary called to... South Africa. His name's William Walker. I just found his story fascinating that, so he's a Mormon battalion veteran and he received his mission call while he was cutting timber in the mountains. And so he didn't, well, received his mission call. It was announced in general conference. And so he didn't hear it until he came down back into the valley a few days later. And he just bought provisions for his family for a year and he left 15 days later. He just left. And I just think that's amazing to go to such an unknown place, leaving two wives and two small children. Anyway, he was 32 years old and it was very difficult for him. The work was difficult. Let's talk about the worldwide effort of missionary work at this time. What's that like? So once the saints realize that they can feed themselves in the Salt Lake Valley. The next effort is to start sending out a large group of missionaries across the world to gather. And the saints have been emboldened in this missionary effort by what they saw in Nauvoo. They had sent a whole cadre of missionaries to England, and it had brought in thousands of converts. So they were emboldened by that effort. And in 1849, Brigham Young and his counselors in the First Presidency said, Let's expand the effort from the British Isles. Let's send Lorenzo Snow to Italy. Let's send John Taylor to France. We'll send Erasmus Snow to Denmark. And South Africa grows out of that. They come a couple of years later in 1852 to South Africa. 
But again, it's part of this ambition. You've got the temple that has these huge granite walls that are going to be going up in the middle of a desert on the one hand. And then you have to gather people who are going to come to that temple and derive great spiritual satisfaction from what goes on inside of the temple. And so the assumption is that people across the world, everywhere, can benefit from the ordinances of the temple, the sealing ordinances that bind families together. And so you have to go find them. You need the hunters and the gatherers to go out and find them. And so South Africa is one of those places. And and I may add here that Brigham Young and other leaders, they know that the gospel is for every person, every person of every race, color, creed. And so they're not afraid of going to a place like Hawaii, where there are people of different skin color or South Africa. But they are hesitant because they know that there are racial prejudices across the world. That partly explains why in the early preaching in South Africa, the preaching is mainly for the Afrikaners, people of Dutch descent. Then later, of course, we will preach to all people in South Africa. It's so fascinating to learn about this perspective, just because today with the missionaries encountered different issues with cultures. And I mean, we have, we experienced some difficulties, but just to think back then, just the things that they were overcoming, but it's created such a heritage of missionary work. I feel like we have it so easy as far as traveling and living and food. Just going back to William Walker, he was rejected 16 times for shelter because he said, we travel without person or script. So in the 19th century, the saints believed that traveling without purse or scrip, which is a teaching of Jesus is in the New Testament. He says this to his apostles. I believe it's Matthew 10. But they believe that this is part of the restoration and that when missionaries go out, they're to follow this New Testament model. And what that means is that they don't have any apartment as missionaries have today where they're paying rent. They are living off of the the goodwill of people that they contact. So they'll knock on a door and they'll say, do you have a room for two humble elders to stay? And then the people who let them in, who will let them stay, they also will listen to them. So this is happening really until the laws uh, of various countries prevent the saints from doing this by the late 19th century. The practice is starting to wane Well, Jed, we appreciate so much you spending time with us today, helping us understand these early missionary efforts, understanding the attitudes and feelings of people and the general culture and how they affected the church, and just for sharing your perspectives. We invite our listeners, you can always reach out to us if you have questions or comments. You can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. You can always look at our website, which has links to the church history topics we've discussed today, as videos, as well as, of course, the chapters. You can find that online at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for listening.